electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. See, it's almost like we read each other's minds because I'm about to give you that exact same figure. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Exchange today. Yes, 14,098. If we close below that on the NASDAQ, worst January ever. Either way, we're talking about a drop of 10 or 11%. Investors are eager to close out the month, but will February bring a break from the selling and volatility? My next guest has the stocks you should be buying right now. And the shine has come off a lot of the streaming stocks. As it turns out, the keeping customers around after they tune in for those big hits, it's not easy to do. We'll look at whether the streaming business model is broken. Plus, a ton of earnings on tap this week from NXP to UPS. We'll give you the names and the trades to watch as we get into gear here. But first, Dom Chu has more numbers for us. All right. So they were kind of mixed in the early part of the session. But right now, Kelly, they are pretty positive. If you look at the NASDAQ composite trade overall, you mentioned that level to avoid being the worst ever month and worst ever January for the NASDAQ. We're above it right now, but we're still up 2.5%. We're near the highs of the session right now, 336-some points. The S&P 44.84, the last trade there, 1% gains there, very respectable. And the Dow lagging, so to speak, up half of 1%, 34,889. So it's green very much so. But let's put some of these moves in perspective as we talk about closing out a very volatile month for January. We're going to focus specifically on the NASDAQ because it has been the epicenter, arguably, of this volatility in trade. The NASDAQ composite right now, as you can see, up about 8% over the last year. So it's moderated the gains. But to kind of put things in perspective, from the record highs that we saw, we are now down roughly 13% from those levels on an intraday basis. Meanwhile, if you want to look from where we were at the bottoms here over the last week, we're up roughly 8% here. So again, 13% below the highs, 8% above the lows that we've seen. This kind of no man's land. We're still waiting to see whether the bounce can sustain. As for over the last week, among the biggest names in that NASDAQ composite trade, where have the big gains come from? What's been powering that index higher? Well, check out Netflix, Apple, and PayPal. I've shown you a one-year chart to put the moves in context. But the bigger moves that we've seen over the last week here are pretty massive because for Apple, We're talking about a 9%-ish gain there. Netflix, rather, a 9% gain over the last week. Apple is closer to 7% in just a one-week span, and PayPal is up about 5%. But as you can see, many downtrends here for Netflix and PayPal especially. We'll see if that mega-cap technology trade continues to be a place where folks want to at least try to dip their toes, Kelly, in buying dips. Yeah, Back over to Netflix you. is up like 75 bucks from, you know, the intraday lows that we saw, I think, even just last week. It's amazing. Right. Dom, thank you very you much, our Dom Chu. Well, this weekend, the Atlanta Fed's Raphael Bostic turned heads when he suggested the Fed could raise rates by half a point if it needs to in the months ahead. Strategists are warning this unpredictable Fed could be a headwind for markets throughout the year. But my next guest has some pretty simple advice. He says, buy the dip. With us now is David Katz. He's the chief investment officer at Matrix Asset Advisors. Am I overstating it, David? Welcome. Uh, no, I think you summed it up pretty well. This is We think that 2022 is going to be an okay year, like 9 10% for stocks. But being that you're starting right now down 8 to 10%, we think it's going to be up a lot from here. We'd be buying days of weakness. We would not be chasing days like today. Okay. What are the names you're most excited to buy here where you still see 
pretty good value. We think there's a lot of excellent value out there. We would use a barbell right now with some value and some growth stocks that are at value prices. On the value side, we like names like Goldman Sachs, U.S. Bancorp on the financials, which just had pullbacks. Medtronic is a medical device maker. Uh, we think it's selling at a compelling price right now. We're probably going to have a little bit light quarter, but we think six to 12 months from now, we expect the stock to be a lot higher. The three stocks that we just gave easily should have 20 to 30 to 40 percent upside this year. Wow. We then balance that against some of the growth stocks that have come down. And, and we like Facebook and Google and Thermo Fisher is a great company, 15 uh, percent or better growth over time. It was at 29 times early uh, earnings earlier this year. It's at about 24 times earnings right now. We think this is a great time to buy that sell off. I'm trying to recall if I asked you about Netflix recently, if you were uh, one of those who preferred Disney over it. But broadly speaking, in sort of the rest of the FANG space, what, what are, the, are the other ones attractive to you? We're going to hear from Alphabet. We're going to hear from Amazon reporting this week. So we like Microsoft. They had a great quarter uh, last week. We think that stock easily has 10% to 15% upside this year, and then we'll continue to do well over time. We've not been a fan of Netflix. We spoke a few weeks ago. Uh, we said we didn't like it. We preferred Viacom and Comcast. That's right. At this point, in light of the very sharp sell-off in Netflix, we're probably okay with it now. You had the CEO bought $20 million uh, worth of stock, uh, and, and there have been some smart, uh, active investors involved with it. So we think it's probably okay, but our preference is Comcast uh, and the Viacom. What do you make of the flattening yield curve, which to me feels like the one big I don't know if call it a sword of Damocles, but it is certainly hanging over the optimism about financials right now. It is hanging over the hopes for the growth outlook and everything that the Fed intends to do. What do you say to people about what we're seeing, especially in the twos and tens? Well, we think that interest rates are going to be going up this year and it's going to be going up on the short end. And we think it also is going to trend up on the longer end. So we wouldn't read too much into a one or two week move in terms of a flattening of the yield curve. We think financials, which did great last year, are positioned to have a very good year this year. They're going to benefit uh, by a rise in rates. We think if it's a steepening yield curve, that even makes it that much better. But a rise in short-term rates is going to help a lot of the financials. A company like Bank of New York or State Street also a significant beneficiary from that. And in terms of the growth stocks, we think if you can buy the growth stocks at a good price, under like 20 times earnings, you're going to do fine. But what we very much are wary of are the 50 and 100 times earnings growth stocks. Sure. Uh, if you look at some of the growth indexes this year, they're down about 15%. There's some really smart growth managers that are down 15%. We think there are opportunities in those. We think value is going to outpace growth this year, but growth started so poorly that we think you can dip your feet in that. And the other part, uh, and we don't traffic as much in this as in small cap stocks, They've sold off huge this year. We think they're going to do better from here. And in that case, we would probably stick to some small cap ETFs like Russell uh, 2000 uh, or the S&P small cap index rather than picking individual stocks just because we don't know them as well. Interesting. So let me go back just before we close. You, you think the yield curve basically will be steep and that long end rates will move higher. Would you sell your financial holdings if that doesn't happen? No, we think that there's so many good things happening with financials right now. They're going to benefit by an improving economy. Uh, the balance sheets are in great shape. The loan portfolios are in great shape. And yet they're selling the 12 times earnings to the market that's a 21 times earnings. So we think a steepening yield curve just is the icing on the cake. But for a lot of them, just the Fed raising rates is going to help them very significantly. So we think they have the wind at their back after almost a decade of the wind at their face. So we like them a lot. And there are lots of different things within the financials. So we like the Goldman or Morgan Stanley. And then we like the pure banks. 
like a J.P. Morgan or a U.S. Bank Corp or a Truist. All right. Sticking with them, hoping for that curve to behave itself, but sticking with them nevertheless. David, great to have you here today. Yeah. Thank you. David Katz with great Matrix. To be here. Have a great day. Thanks. My next guest has been bullish on the home builders for nearly a decade. He's almost the first person I think of if anybody talks about home builders. But this year has been really rough for the sector, with most of the names down 15% or more. Not a big deal, but look at the multiples. These names are so depressed that they're trading at price-to-earnings multiples we haven't seen since the onset of the housing crisis in 2006. Joining me now to explain is Bill Smead. He's the chief investment officer at Smead Capital Management, portfolio manager of the Smead Value Fund, and the Morningstar Five Star Fund posted 37% gains last year, beating the S&P by more than 10%. So, Bill, this is either the buying opportunity of a lifetime or these earnings are about to fall 40% or they're going to stay at these depressed multiples. Tell me what's going on here. Well, you've got a whole bunch of people analyzing these companies and even people working in the industry that were also analyzing and working in the industry back when the debacle hit in 04 to 06 and then caused the financial crisis and the housing depression that kind of peaked the depths of it in 2010. So, so it's like PTSD. This is a dramatically different industry than it was 15 years ago. The first thing is, as I've said for you many times in the last nine years, the demographics are spectacular. The millennials didn't really get started buying a house until the pandemic hit. Therefore, how do you burn 10 years of demand off in a year and a half? Right. Well, the answer is, the answer is you have it. The second thing, it used to be an extremely fragmented industry. And now the three home builders we own, Horton, Lennar, and NVR, have 20% market share in the United States of America. They build one out of every five homes. So it's no longer a fragmented industry. The third thing is they used to be land developers. They used to make their money by buying land, developing land, and then they put a house on it to get the land sold, which is where they made their money. Kind of like selling tables at a diner. And that, But now what, what they're doing is other people are developing land. You had on your your folks' shows three weeks ago, the Howard Hughes Corp mm-hmm. is developing a town of 300,000 people near Phoenix, and Lennar is going to build most of the homes. So if you take out the balance sheet risk, by the way, these companies are flush with cash, spectacular balance sheets. At the peak of the cycle back in 05 and 06, these folks were all levered up to their eyeballs. Right. They'd borrowed <laughs> money to, they had borrowed money to develop land. When things turned down, you have to write down the value of that land. Now, 75% of what a Horton builds on, somebody else develops. 100% for NVR and 50-50 for Lennar, but Lennar is moving that other direction quite quickly. So here's two more things I, I'm going to throw at you. Because, again, if you're right, this is a spectacular opportunity. I mean, six times forward earnings is almost unheard of. And if you're wrong, I'm really worried about the whole economy. So. When we talk uh, to Laura Champagne, an analyst I very much respect over at Loop, she covers Home Depot and Lowe's and the rest of it. We spoke to her on last Friday. She said she downgraded Home Depot and Lowe's back in Thanksgiving, started to see some, some signs of softness coming. She was right for the stocks. Now she says she's moving to the sidelines on everything housing in her coverage space. Why would she do that if you're right? Well, first off, you, you've already covered one part of the subject. A lot of these people are trying to guess what's going to happen in three to six months. We don't. That's not our world. We're five to ten years, five to ten years out. And and we did some analysis today that that looks at uh, 
the way that the return on equity is going to get people rich in this industry. We're talking about 16.8% returns based on the growth in book value from generating 20% return on equity. Look, we did analysis the other day uh, just using Horton as an example. Using a 5% earnings growth rate and a, and a much higher interest rate than we have today, we, we computed that the present value of the stock is about $169 a share. That's just the net present value of the future income stream in the next 10 years at a 5% earnings growth rate. But we got 90 million millennials to take right. care of. All right. So easily, easily 10 to 15% growth, but not smooth. Everybody wants smooth. You're not going to get smooth. There will be 20% corrections in the stocks from time to time. There always is. That's what all great long-term bull markets in a stock include. And Horton, there's Horton uh, at 87, uh, trading $87 a share. Okay, so last thing I want to throw at you, and again, looking around for explanations, you mentioned the rates piece, how you're still saying that's not going to be, you know, the factor that ends this. People say that they're at peak earnings right now because costs are so high. We know what's been happening on the material side of the picture, on the labor side of the uh, picture. Why aren't we at peak earnings? Why won't the supply side be a real constraint for them? You know, to understand where we're going, you kind of had to be around in the in the mid to late 70s, in the early 80s. And there's not that many people participate in the market <laughs> anymore that were around back then, okay? The second biggest building boom of the last 60 years was 1978, and the average mortgage rate that year was 10.4%. So, is 375 a high rate or a low rate? It is would four and a half percent be a high rate or a low rate? And the answer is anything below five is in the lowest seven percent of all the interest rates for the last 60 years. Why are millennials so blessed that God gives them this cheap money to buy their house with? I have no idea. <laughs> Bill, this has been fun. I, you know, I appreciate it. And this, I think, is probably the sector to watch uh, in the next couple of months for things to shake out here. I've made a a vociferous defense of your holdings. Bill Smead joining me with the Smead Value Fund today. Thank you so much. We appreciate it. We've got a news alert on Boeing. Fill a boat with the story. Phil? Kelly, take a look at shares of Boeing. This order was expected. It has been talked about, uh, hinted at over the last couple of days. It is now official. A massive order with Qatar Air. Qatar will be the launch uh, airline for the new 777X freighter. 34 of them uh, have been bought by Qatar. They're also buying two of the existing 777 freighters. Also a commitment for 25 737 Maxes, the stretch model, the 737-10, and an option for another 25. Add it all up. You're talking about an order that could reach 102 airplanes with engines included, the potential list price value, $34 billion. Obviously, planes and engines are never sold at list prices, but still a massive, massive order for Boeing and for GE Aviation, uh, which will be providing the engines on these aircraft. So a huge, huge move uh, for Boeing. And that's why the stock is up today as they land a big order, potentially list value price of $34 billion with Qatar Air. Kelly, back to you. Yeah, looking to break out to session highs up 3.4%. Bill, uh, (laughs) Phil on Boeing. Thank you so much, sir. We appreciate it. Boeing, of course, helping the Dow right now as well. Coming up, the content race is hotter than ever, and new numbers suggest streamers are struggling to keep their subscribers happy. We'll explain that next. Plus, we've got the good, the bad, and the ugly in earnings exchange today. Exxon on pace for its best month ever, up 23%. UPS.
UPS riding a three-week losing streak, and NXP having its worst month since March of 2020. We'll tell you how to trade these three names ahead of their earnings. The exchange is back in a moment. Don't go anywhere. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Streaming services are spending big to provide content for their customers, but keeping them around is a challenge. Disney Plus, HBO Max, Apple TV Plus all saw about half of their new subscribers bail after just six months after big releases. That's according to market uh, data platform Atena. So how big of a problem is this for the streamers? Let's bring in Evercore ISI's Mark Mahaney with our very own Julia Borston. Mark, welcome. And it feels like Netflix has come up in the sense that, you know, it was so easy for them back in the day when content, no one else was really trying to get it. There were no other real competitors. Has the whole business model changed now? I don't think so. I just think as the company has become bigger and the end markets become just a little bit more mature, it's just harder to get that incremental subs. You know, one of the positives about Netflix in the last print was that its most mature market, the U.S., arguably the most competitive streaming market, didn't see a dramatic slowdown. The issue is really in other parts of the of the world. So there's no question you've got to spend a lot of money to stay in this business. And Netflix is, has to spend at least $18 billion a year, which they're doing. The business model allows it. But, you know, they're going to have to keep growing it. There's no margin, easy margin relief out of this. You're, if you're competing in streaming, you've got to spend top dollar and you've got to be willing to spend at least $10 billion a year or else you're not going to be a player. Even for Comcast, Julie, our parent company, there are investors who want to see NBCU separate from Comcast so that they can spend billions and billions and billions on Peacock, which Comcast investors don't want. You know, they're here for other reasons. But remember, Kelly, that Peacock is really playing a different game here than Netflix is. Netflix is about subscriber dollars. Peacock is about advertising dollars. And because Peacock also has a live component and it has news and it's going to have the Olympics coming up, having news and sports is a different sort of a different equation and it keeps people coming back in a different cadence. I think there's something fascinating. I mean, just looking at the NFL ratings, at this idea that you know if you invest in live sports, you're going to have your, your subscribers or your viewers come back at a regular cadence, the pressure for something like a net uh, services like Netflix is to make sure that they're investing in the type of original content they can make people feel like it's worth continuing to subscribe, even if they've just burned through a season of a show. Right. And Mark, when we spoke to Laura Martin not long ago over at Needham, she said it was a mistake for Netflix not to own sports. I mean, if you think about it, 
as these channels proliferate, it's easier to be the, the tentpole home of a sports franchise that's going to be back year after year after year, isn't it? Yeah, um, this is a tough one. Uh, and I wonder about what the next growth curve initiative for Netflix is going to be. And uh, I know people like Lori Martin, uh, you know, very thoughtfully suggesting that they get into sports. The problem with sports is that it's not on demand. You watch the sports when the athletes and the, you know, the organizations want to want to play. And whereas Netflix's appeal all over, you know, over the years is that you can watch, you know, large number of large amount of content pretty much on any device whenever you want. You can watch, you can binge, or you can just snack on that uh, series. So it changes the value prop. It's also a very competitive bidding space. I think the more interesting opportunity here for Netflix, and this is a change in my thinking too, is not in the U.S., but overseas. They're going to have to start introducing, if they really have started to hit mature out their paid subscriber base, they're going to need to introduce an ad-supported model. That's yeah. going to take them a couple of that's what I'm watching for. That's been her big call as well, saying they have to do that, Julia. I mean, does it make sense at some point? Because there's not, not every household can afford $15 a month for Netflix. For a lot, they say, I would happily pay four or five and, you know, watch ads. But look, and that's what's so interesting now is we just saw Netflix raise prices in the U.S., but they actually lowered prices in India because they've been struggling to compete there where prices for rival services are relatively lower. But one of the bullish analyst notes that came out today said that they believe that or I believe it was uh, later late last week uh, was that. They believe that Netflix did have pricing power and could, you know, continue to raise prices as they continue to invest in content. But I think what we have to see, Kelly, is as this year advances, how many subscription services people are going to want to pay for. If Netflix is going to be the go-to subscription service and people feel like it's going to be worth paying $20 a month at the high end, you know, which are the other ones that may uh, get lost in the shovel and people might be more willing to cut the cord with? Mark, what would your parting advice for investors be as, as this all shakes out? Well, on Netflix, you know, I'm 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 kind of in the middle now. I've, I've uh, after about a decade of having a buy on the stock, I've uh, we downgraded it uh, off earnings and just real concern over what's happened to the growth. And I don't think we're. I, my guess is that we're no longer clipping along at 25 million subs. This was a wonderful stock. Is sub ads accelerated throughout last decade? Best performing S and P 500 stock last decade. This decade, my guess now is that. We're going to have decelerating sub ads every year. The number of new subs is going to be declining. I think that makes it much harder for the stock to outperform. It becomes much more of a tactical rather than a quarter long. So I'm steering clear of Netflix for now. And I look at other assets. I like assets like Spotify, for example, mm. uh, Google, Facebook, Amazon. Spotify. I won't I won't dwell there. We'll, we'll have that discussion another time. <laughs> Guys, thank you both very much today. Mark Mahaney and Julia Borston talking on streaming. Coming up, the fintech stocks seeing some nice gains today, but they have a lot of ground to make up. Year-to-date losses still ugly, a firm down 37%, Block down 27%, Robinhood 23%. Despite that, Kathy Wood buying Hood on the dip, should you, will explore. Plus the fallout from a stronger dollar. We're going to look at the sectors and stocks most impacted, including this one, the name ahead. We're back in a minute. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. 
With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome back, everybody. Counter trend here to close out the month. The Nasdaq outperforming. It's up two and a half percent. And we're above the level of 14,098 that would make it the worst January ever, but only by a little bit here. The Dow is up 220 at the lows. It was down about 220. So a turnaround there led by some Boeing news a few moments ago as well. Some of the hard hit new energy names are also rebounding today, like Neo, Plug Power, QuantumScape, Fisker and Rivian. We're looking at gains of 10 to in Neo's case, 17% today. A lot of these names still down more than 20% this month. Rivian, the biggest lagger, down nearly 40% in January. And shares of Sony have resumed trading just moments ago after announcing they're acquiring video game maker Bungie for $3.6 billion. All the gamers excited about this one. Just a fraction of Microsoft's $70 billion move to acquire Activision Blizzard, but could still be a sign Sony is feeling the pressure to expand its gaming offerings. As we said, the shares just reopened and they're up about 4.5%. And finally, Moderna is moving higher after getting full FDA approval of their COVID vaccine. Our Meg Terrell notes, it doesn't change a huge amount, but it will allow them to start advertising on TV if they want. The stock's still down more than 30% in January for its worst month ever. It's up 5% today. And ahead on Power Lunch, we'll get the trader's take on Moderna along with some of the other biggest S&P laggards this month. Should you buy the dip or stay away? Let's get to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel? Hi, Kelly, and here's what's happening at this hour. California Governor Gavin Newsom is moving to close the nation's largest death row. He says that he wants to move all condemned prisoners to other prisons within two years. The goal is to turn San Quentin State Prison into a rehabilitation center. The U.S. and Russia squaring off over Ukraine in a rare debate at the U.N. Security Council. Russia's ambassador criticizing what he said was interference in the domestic affairs of his country. U.S. ambassador calling the Russian buildup of troops near Ukraine a clear threat to peace. The parents of Ahmad Arbery are criticizing a hate crime plea deal with some of the men convicted of killing their son. They say that the trial should go forward and any plea deal is, quote, disrespectful. And on the news tonight, more outrage over the slow investigation into the death of Lauren Smith Fields and the outlook for charges in that case. That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Kelly? Rahel, thank you very much. Rahel Solomon. Still ahead, Exxon, NXP, and UPS are all on deck with earnings. We'll give you the action, the story, and the trade on each stock ahead of the results. Earnings Exchange is next. Welcome back. It's time for Earnings Exchange with the busiest week of the season upon us. 99 S&P companies and two Dow Components report. Let's get the action, the story, and the trade on three of them. First up is NXP reporting after the bell. The semi-name up about 6% into the print, but down 13% this year. Piper Sandler recently downgraded the stock to neutral, warning that 50% of its revenue comes from the auto sector. Dom Chu here with the story of NXP Semi and with our trades today. Ari Wald is executive director and head of technical analysis at Oppenheimer. Welcome to you both. Dom, this one's been on our radar since last fall. A lot, a lot of times. I mean, first of all, the entire semiconductor business is one of the most focused on by investors. NXP, to your point, has actually been a winner over the last year, if you look at it that way, but not the kind of winner that other chip chip stocks have been. So let's get to the numbers. The expectations are for $3.01 in terms of earnings per share, $3 billion or thereabouts worth of revenues on an adjusted basis, though. 
Earnings per share is closer to $2.69. Now, for NXP Semi, the story, like you said, is more about product and industry-specific chips, specifically things that go into powering cars, electric vehicles, self-driving, slash autopilot, slash driver assist, you name it. Now, NXP is one of those stocks that pretty much gets mentioned synonymously. Almost any time there's anything going on with regard to autonomous driving or the next generation of vehicles, anything Internet of Things oriented, as was the case for many of these other chip companies, a lot of ears and eyes are going to be on the outlook for supply chains and timelines on when things really get back towards normal. And by the way, because of the auto tilt for NXP, Kelly, very much about any kind of commentary we hear about the auto industry, yep. not just the chips overall. Oh, a little under 17 times PE, Dom. Thanks. So, Ari, again, the stock is not normally a bellwether for the semi-industry, but because this cycle has been driven by auto demand and to some extent, you know, it, it will be interesting to watch for signs if they've reached any kind of, you know, peak shipments or anything like that. Yeah, I think what the stock does have going for it is exactly that. These portfolio tailwinds from what's still a strong semiconductors industry. Uh, they've held most of them have held support in the way back down. We're still bullish on them for the long term. We would side more with the U.S. companies rather than uh, NXP, a Dutch company, uh, just because NXP has rolled over a little bit more. ASML as well. It's below its 200 day average. We're seeing that 200 day average flatten over. So we prefer Broadcom, Marvell, NVIDIA, uh, but with that said, given our positive views on the industry, I think you can give it some added flexibility uh, above as long as it holds support. One hundred eighty two dollars, I think, is the key level. That was the prior lows with some trading resistance approaching at two hundred ten. All right. And it's trading on the nose around two hundred today. We appreciate it, guys. Dom, thanks. We'll see you again soon. Our Dom Chu Aries, stay right there. And we'll turn our attention to Exxon, the three hundred billion dollar energy company on a tear this year. It's up twenty five percent this month. This was a $30 stock in October of 2020. It's at 76 today, and it just announced a restructuring move. Some are calling it a total game changer. It'll create three business lines within Exxon. It's moving its headquarters to Houston. Pippa Stevens is here with a story for us. Pippa? Hey, Kelly, that's right. That reorg announcement just now focused on streamlining operations and cost-cutting. Shares of Exxon rising to the highest level in two and a half years following that news. Now, ahead of earnings tomorrow, analysts are expecting the company to have nearly doubled its revenue year over year to $92 billion amid this higher oil and gas price environment. But really important here is the guidance, including around the, cap the company's capital spending plans. Exxon has said it expects to spend between 20 and $25 billion per year through 2027. Important to note, that's as much as a third below its pre-pandemic plans to spend more than $30 billion a year. So again, the company is cutting back here. And then finally, investors will be watching for updates around its capital, its uh, shareholder return program, as well as debt reduction. Of course, the balance sheet progress is expected to continue, which then opens the door for more capital returns. All right, Ari, this one I would love to hear your take on because what a monster month it's had, even after a strong 2021. Uh, it has been. How, how do you how do you bet against energy? Just given the exceptional relative strength we've really seen across the board across the sector, uh, we have some preference for the more the exploration and production uh, side of the industry. But even Exxon can make the case there's some long term runway back to eighty seven dollars. This is where the stock peaked back in 2018. But here's the issue: the stock's currently 25 percent above its 200-day average. I wow. think there's some trading risk here. I like to, I think you can buy it a little bit better in the upper 60 range, which is where it's 
50-day average comes into play. How how common is that stat for a stock to be 25% above its 200-day? What is that? How common is that, and what typically happens afterwards? Well, you have to look at how each uh, particular stock, you know, a higher beta stock, it might be more of the norm. For Exxon, it's pretty rare. This is the upper, uh, at the upper end of, of how it's oscillated through history. So you don't see these types of moves in Exxon. With that said, a longer term move might be in play, but uh, I, our, our feel is that there's some trading risk here. You'd like to see tactically that uh, come in a little bit more. All right. Very interesting. Pippa, how significant is this? you know, a nod to the energy transition in some ways, the way they're reorganizing or, or what, what spurred this move today? Absolutely. They're actually separating out that energy transition business into its own unit. Hmm. So there, now there's three businesses, the upstream division, then chemicals and refining are combined into one. And then it's clean energy transition business is the third. And so Exxon really is pushing this. There are a lot of skeptics out there saying this is more just trying to appease some investors rather than actual meaningful change, uh, but certainly a, a priority for the company going forward as this reorg represents. Very interesting. All right, we look forward to hearing more on their earnings, see how they're doing uh, lately. Pippa, thank you. Finally, UPS reporting tomorrow before the bell. The stock is down 8% to start the year, but analysts are forecasting a potentially record-setting quarter. Remember, this is their holiday one. Frank Holland is here with this story. What are people watching, Frank? Hey there, Kelly. Well, you just mentioned it. Uh, a lot of analysts are expecting a record-breaking quarter. Uh, right now, revenue forecast to be at $27 billion EPS at $3.10 a share. That's a 16% increase year over year. But the big thing to watch here is the company's U.S. business, and specifically its revenues in its U.S. business and its margin in its U.S. business. That margin's right around 10%. Analysts on the street, they're going to be happy. Investors are going to be happy. When UPS has either performed under that 10% mark for margin or guided under that 10%, uh, the street just has not been happy with it. Um, the U.S. business is where it gets about 50% of its revenue. The overwhelming majority of that is its ground business. That's residential e-commerce. So the question that everybody keeps asking is, they can, they, can UPS and FedEx, for that matter, keep this business profitable? It's all been a big part of CEO Carol Tomei's better, not bigger strategy to actually turn away some business and charge more. So the pricing power of this company and its ability to keep that residential e-commerce profitable. That's going to be the big key to watch. Yeah. Ari, what do you think the trade is here? Well, I got good news, bad news. Good news is that the industrials uh, have outperformed more than any other sector six months after a, uh, the first Fed rate hike going back to 1953. So that would bode well for stocks like UPS. Uh, the bad news is you're, you're just not seeing it in the price action. And really, that could be said for the air freight and logistics industry overall. FedEx having its problems in terms of its trend as well. So we're on the sidelines with this one. At the very least, I would consider a stop at $193. That was the, the December low. We tested it recently. We're holding it. Uh, but we see more of a range rather than a really identifiable trend uh, for UPS. All right. So you're watching the 193 low. The stock's at 201. It's almost like your heart wants it, but your head says no. You know, something like that. Look for some long shorts, maybe UPS over FedEx, more attractive opportunities elsewhere in the market than this one right here. Very interesting. And again, to your point about industrials outperforming in the next few months, that's one place I think for all investors to be keenly watching as we talk more and more about the Fed. We'll leave it there, guys. Thanks, Ari Wald. Great to have you today. Frank Holland, thank you so much for your reporting on UPS. The street is finding deals in January's downturn. 
Some of today's biggest valuation calls are next. And remember, you can catch our show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. You can also hear my recorded newsletters, our new conversations with Kelly, which are a little bit longer interview on topics of interest. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Markets climbing today. We're near session highs right now with the Dow up 231. The Nasdaq, the outperformer after underperforming all month. Let's get to Dom Chu for a market flash and where the street is going bargain hunting. Dom? All right. So, Kelly, we want to take a look at several analyst notes out today, beginning with Beyond Meat. Now, that stock is getting upgraded to overweight over at Barclays, with analysts arguing that its current price undervalues the company's growth potential in U.S. food service and the international broadly. Now, that stock is up about 14 percent right now. But it's still off more than 60% over the course of the past 12 months, as you can see there. So putting it in context. Now, another badly beaten up stock over the past year has been Spotify. At its current level, though, analysts over at Citigroup see a compelling entry point, especially as the company continues improving on its monetization of advertisements. Those shares up 11%. And while they note that paid subscriber growth may slow, Analysts say Spotify is more resilient than other subscription firms and still view the risk-reward dynamic as favorable. So Spotify catching a bid. And we're going to end on Tesla, which is jumping today as analysts over at Credit Suisse upgrade the EV maker to outperform, saying the stock is now an attractive entry point. See a theme there. After sinking around 12 percent over the past four weeks, they view Tesla as the leader in accelerating shifts to EVs. So, Kelly, three names buying the dip. At least the analysts say that. Back over to you. What do you make of, I mean, Joe Rogan kind of apologized, Dom. He's going corporate. Well, it's not just that, too. If you take a look at the way that these stocks have just been hammered as of late. I mean, if you look at Tesla overall, the, over the last month, we say 13, 14 percent. It's lost about a third of its value since the highs that we've seen over there. And Spotify has been on a one year decline of near 38, 39 percent. So this could be a very, very much about the stories, as we kind of just did with the earnings exchange, and very much about maybe a risk reward on just how far a company has gotten beaten up before the fundamentals look attractive again. Now, that's not to say that there's a bottoming in place already happening, but at least some analysts think that, hey, there's a lot of upside left from current levels if things start to really normalize. All right. All right. Things settle down a bit. Dom, thank you very much. We appreciate it, Dom Chu. The Global X FinTech ETF falling more than 16% this year, and it's a lot worse for key components. Robinhood's down 83% from its 52-week high. Block down 59%. PayPal's down 45%. Should you follow in Kathy Wood's shoes and buy the dips? That's next here on The Exchange. Welcome back. It's been a tough start to the year for fintech. A firm down 36 percent. Robinhood and Block down more than 20 percent. But ARK's Kathy Wood continues to bet big on Hood. Her ARK K fund snapped up nearly 2.5 million shares just last Friday. It's prompting a rebound today. Hood is up 12 percent. ARK's up 7.5 percent. Is the tide turning for these names? Joining me now is Dan Delev, Mizuho Senior Analyst for Fintech Equity Research. Dan, it's great to see you again. Um, I mean, it seems like an obvious thing to ask, right? Okay, we're down 80% in some cases. Maybe we you know, have a, have a one or two day pop here, but where do you think the real value is? Yeah, so actually we took a very big picture view of the whole space. Again, thanks for having me on the show. We looked at fin- 50 fintech stocks over you know, multiple quarter, multiple years. And what you're seeing is that they closely track organic growth for the companies, which makes sense. It's very, you know, it actually makes sense when you think about it. Sure. But there is a turning point, which means we've troughed in terms of growth decline. We've troughed 
in the first or second quarter. And that's why we're actually calling for a massive rebound of the whole space into the second half. And I think what you're seeing today is probably the beginning of that. So it's actually fundamentally backed uh, for the whole space. And then there's some selective stock picking where we think we can get some extra so, extra alpha. Wait a minute. Tell me about this growth decline. We're not supposed to have growth declines amongst, you know, super hot startup names. What, what, what's been going? I mean, obviously, we know the Robinhood story, but what, what's the story for right. the rest of the space? Yeah, it's not declines. I should take it back. It's actually decelerating growth, right? So stocks or, you know, stocks actually react very positively when growth is reaccelerating. And what we've been through because of the, you know, I call it like FIFO, right? First in, first out. So we went into COVID. Tech benefited dramatically from, or fintech specifically, dramatically from COVID. It also saw the toughest comps, you know, because of COVID. For example, Robinhood's toughest comp is first quarter of 2022, right? Because that's the mean stock kind of era of last year. So once we get through that, so it's not like growth is, is, is declining, it's actually just slowing. The reacceleration in growth is what's going to get the oom for the momentum back into those stocks into the second half. So significantly, you think that on Robinhood, it appears to have inflected positively and bottomed. On PayPal, sentiment is over-concerned. You expect a snapback into positive momentum. And then I want to ask you about the two names you're actually still worried about right now. One of them is Visa, which is suddenly seeming to have some traction as the reopening, you know, gather seem they had great earnings, a huge stock reaction. Why are you worried about that one in particular? Yeah, so Visa is kind of the, the the queen of the ecosystem. It sits in the middle of the ecosystem. You know, it's it's been for years and years a great stock, and and I and, and I think they they definitely had a great quarter. But we look at it very long term, and and the work that we've done when we downgraded them uh, several weeks ago shows you that there's real risk to their model, to their business model. Companies like Plaid are you know account to accounts payments. Um, real-time payments, buy now, pay later, all these things are nibbling at their growth long-term. And that's why we think that the future for Visa isn't going to be as good as its past. Plus, cash to card is a huge driver of growth. Because of COVID, we had such a massive transition from cash to card. Yeah. We had like yeah. one, five years in one year. And that's what makes it very difficult for the long-term business model to be as strong as it was in the past. The final one is, is a heartbreaker for a lot of people who loved this stock and, and have just... I get questions about it all the time. Coinbase, they say, okay, we get that Bitcoin's down, but why has the stock done so poorly? And why are you worried about it, especially on their first quarter? Yeah, I think Coinbase, the numbers are just too high for the first quarter. But the long-term, the long-term view of Coinbase, and that's why we don't like it, is that yields or take rates continue to come under pressure, right? Coinbase is only 2% of the global Bitcoin market. It seems big here from our perspective in the US, but global market share is actually just 2%-ish, right? So the long-term decline in take rates over time, that's what worries us. Stocks hate it when the take rate, the yield keeps, or the spread keeps coming down. And that's what we're seeing with Coinbase as crypto trading becomes more and more competitive. And that's the issue with Coinbase. That's the majority of the revenue mm -hmm. and the biggest risk to the stock. All right, fascinating. So let's end it with Robinhood. For everyone out there who's beleaguered and holding it or wondering if now's the time to buy, where do you think it should be trading at? Uh, what's its proper valuation? I think the stock should be going to 20 very, very soon. I mean, it, this, this, this stock has gotten, you know, really like tarnished, right, over the last few few months. And some of it was merited because the numbers weren't good. But you're seeing that inflection. You're seeing kind of the, the decline in monthly average users becoming less negative. You're seeing kind of what we call the first derivative becoming more positive. So I think that your you know, valuations in fintech are, you know, are high to begin with, with. But I think on a relative basis, we see that $20 benchmark coming in very quickly 
if the stock continues, the fundamentals continue to trade or to turn around like they've done thus far. All right. It's at 14 right now. It's up 10 percent today. And so that would be another pretty big move from here. Dan, thanks for all your time. We appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Dan DeLev with Mizuho. And the Nasdaq is staging a broader rebound today, but it's on pace for one of its worst Januaries ever. There could be more pain ahead in Techland if this chart keeps climbing. We'll reveal it and the other sector at risk next. Welcome back, everybody. Look at the dollar hitting an 18-month high. We're just under 97 at the moment. Seema Modi is here with a look at the names that could get hit the hardest. Market doesn't always like a strong dollar, Seema. It does not, Kelly. And companies are already starting to warn Wall Street of the effect of a rising dollar. Netflix saying the U.S. dollar has strengthened meaningfully against the most other currencies in its shareholder letter with 60 percent of revenue outside of the U.S. due to our international success. We estimate that the U.S. dollar's appreciation over the past six months has caught us, cost us roughly $1 billion in expected 2022 revenue. Now, on the topic of currencies, Apple estimating a three-point headwind when compared to the December quarter growth rate. And if we back up for a second, Kelly, technology is one of the most exposed sectors with over half of sales outside the U.S. Therefore, their products become more expensive to foreign customers when the dollar appreciates. Chip stocks specifically are high on the list, so names like NVIDIA, Texas Instruments, making up about 60 to 70% of sales outside the U.S., that is uh, according to Goldman Sachs. And it also hits the major exporters. So you think oil, materials, industrials that are highly diversified. Spoke to Melius Research, and they were highlighting names like 3M, General Electric, Boeing, Caterpillar, those stocks have suffered in recent days due in part to earnings and those ongoing concerns around supply chain. So I guess for the question now, with the latest comments from the Fed Chair Jerome Powell around uh, interest rates and the effect you had on the dollar, the question now is how executives respond. And one way they do that is by securing hedging contracts and also reevaluating the vendors they use. Uh, geographically speaking, if the dollar continues to rise, Kelly. Yeah, especially because the U.S. is tightening ahead of Europe, which is way behind, ahead of the U.K., ahead of a lot of other places. So you mentioned it in passing, but stronger dollar is also a headwind for commodity prices, for oil prices, maybe even for energy companies. And that's a really fascinating topic, Kelly, because there isn't really the, the direct effect is harder to understand when you have a stronger dollar coinciding with oil prices, which have rebounded, right? So the question there is how producers overseas respond. Do they buy uh, less oil from the U.S. because of the stronger dollar? It makes it, of course, more expensive for a country like India, which imports most of its energy needs, um, specifically not gas from countries like the U.S. Uh, and the other question is, do they therefore stockpile less? That is one thing we did see back in 2018 when we did see the dollar strengthen energy producers, excuse me, energy companies that uh, import energy stockpiled less. So that's something we could potentially see. Yeah, fair point. It's been the strongest sector this month, uh, strongest place in the market, which has been a tough January. Seema, thank you very much. And that does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.